Acts chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 to 9 and 12 to 14. So get your Bible, get your phone, whatever you got, and let's, let's read. Do I need to go back? Am I all right? There's, moving me might be easier. Like, <laughs> you get a wee mobile platform that you can control from, from back there. Like, Acts chapter 1. Let's, let's pray and read God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Spirit. We thank you for your presence. And I pray that this day we will have a renewed desire, a new hunger, a new filling, a new power, a new encounter of your Holy Spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. This is Luke part 2. And he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer. So here's the question that I got asked last week in school and it comes up every now and again and it's nothing to do with chemistry. It's not on the specification. There's the question. Are you Pentecostal? Are you a Pentecostal, sir? See the comma there, not a Pentecostal, sir, but are you a Pentecostal, sir? See the difference? Okay. Um, Are you a Pentecostal, sir? Uh, we were doing Alpha course, so we've been working through Alpha with Rach and about 13 or 14 of our mates uh, over the school year in my room at lunchtimes. There's about half a dozen different teachers that are, that are doing it. And uh, we got to the stuff about the Holy Spirit, and after we did the Holy Spirit video and let them do their discussions, we took a week just to, to talk about the Spirit. And this is the question that comes up. And it's a question that I hate answering. I absolutely hate it. Uh, in my early days of faith, I was given a book by an author who I will not name because I don't agree with him and I don't like to get into naming people and all and disagreeing and all that gar- garbage. Like, But 
This book was given to me and it was about the end times. Uh, and for me as a new Christian, this was all very sensational. You know, it was all rapture and tribulation and, and all of this stuff. And I found it really exciting. I now don't agree with any of it, but I found it really exciting at the time. And therefore, this author became sort of one of my early favorite authors. And I went on to read some of his other books. And he rubbished the idea of spiritual gifts functioning in the church today. He didn't just disagree with it and politely state his opinion. He mocked it and mocked anybody who agreed with it. But this influenced my view because I was young and I was fresh. And I just assumed if he's got a book published, he must be right. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that with Christian books and you just think, well, it's published and therefore it's true. Um, but over time... My view changed through studying the scriptures, through particularly the influence of Eugene Smith. Anybody that knows Eugene, uh, listening to his teaching and spending time with him. And I then completely switched to a point of view that I wanted to embrace the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. But I became frustrated because I felt what I saw in scripture was not what was mirrored by a lot of people who talked about being Pentecostal that I saw a Holy Spirit who was massive in, in what he did, in the expansiveness of his, of his ministry and his work in the life of a believer, I became a bit annoyed that what I was seeing in church was not that wide expansiveness, but a limited view of it. So when I get asked this question, I never quite know how to answer it. So I do the Jesus trick. You know the thing that Jesus does when people ask him a question? He just turns around and asks a question back. And I ask them, well, what do you mean? And usually the answer that I will get is, do you believe in spiritual gifts? And I think, absolutely. But there's an awful lot more to the Holy Spirit than just spiritual gifts. Don't limit him. He is not just about gifts. He is about character transformation. He is about many other things and I think to limit him is very, very dangerous. Just this past few days, I was in conversation with a guy who said he'd had an encounter with the Spirit 40 years ago. And I thought, that's, I'm glad that that happened. But I don't know that that's what Paul had in mind when he said, walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5. Or when he said, be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. And you probably know that that filled there is a continuous tense in the Greek, be continually filled, not just once, but over and over and over again. And Pentecost, as I said earlier, the church calendar is, is something that I, I love at Easter and I love at Advent, and I, I still don't know what some of the days mean, <laughs> despite growing up in a liturgical environment where you heard, you know, what what day it was in the church year every week. I, I still am not fully au fait with some of them. But I reckon one of God's favorite apps, if he had an app, if he had an iPhone, that would be one of his favorite apps. Do you know what that one is? Yeah, I don't know about you, but as the years go on, this becomes more and more important. This is the Reminders app. And frankly, if I don't put it in the Reminders app, it probably won't get done <laughs> because I'm getting rather forgetful. So my Reminders app is usually quite full. Uh, there's usually red spots on there telling me there are four things that I should have done several days ago that I have not done. But God's into reminders. 
And this is where I think the church with a liturgical calendar has definitely got it right in terms of prompting us to remember important days, important events. God told the people at the time of Joshua, whenever they crossed the Jordan, they were to put up a pile of stones and those stones were to act as a memorial that in future years, whenever their children saw them and asked them, why are these stones here? They would then remember how God brought them across the Jordan. So today is a day in the church calendar that we remember Pentecost. Scott McKnight, who is a brilliant author, says the way to drain a theology from the church is never to remember it. It's not just a routine, oh, it's Pentecost Sunday, but there's an importance in remembering and reminding one another of of what this is about. It's what Jesus did when he instituted the Lord's Supper and said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget it. Keep on doing it over and over and over again. So on Pentecost Sunday, I want to just give you some thoughts about the Holy Spirit and some aspects of the Holy Spirit that maybe we don't uh, emphasize enough, that maybe we, we emphasize certain things like the gifts, the fruit, and other things we don't really emphasize. So I'm just, this is a bit higgledy-piggledy, um, and it's not in any particular slick order, but here we go. Pentecost brings power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power. The Christian life is a life of power. Now, that does not mean we exert power over other people. It does not mean the church is some sort of global organization trying to create power or grab power. What I mean when I say the Christian life is a life of power I mean, it's not, it's not my power or your power or our collective power. It's God's power inside us. That's what I mean when I say this is a life of power. Gordon Fee, another tremendous writer, has a massive book on the Holy Spirit in the writings of Paul. And it's called God's Empowering Presence. The Holy Spirit brings power. Power to live a life that pleases God and that honors him because you cannot do it on your own. It is not possible. Have you ever had moments, there was a great moment not that long ago, I was chatting to somebody who shall remain nameless but is not in the room and um, in, in his own wonderful words, he basically told me that a year ago he would have responded very violently to a situation that had happened to him whereas this year he just didn't want to respond that way anymore. Still a bit rough around the edges and still a work in progress, but change was coming. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live differently. Pentecost brings power. If you try to live the Christian life without power, you are going to very quickly burn out, get tired, get irritated, get frustrated, get disillusioned. Pentecost brings power. Another thing that Pentecost does, Pentecost is for mission. This is an aspect that I think we sometimes neglect. Talk about the Holy Spirit, default things that come to mind. This is not always one of them. In Acts chapter 1, again, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses. Sometimes we talk about the church having a mission. And I don't know who this is from, but I like it. I've heard it in lots of different contexts, but I'm never quite sure who who originally said it. 
God does not have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. God is the one who has the mission. And God's mission is to see the gospel go throughout the world. God's mission is to see humanity restored. To see men and women and young people born again, filled with the Spirit, conformed to the image of Christ. God has a mission and the church is the vehicle by which that mission will be fulfilled. Whenever Pentecost happened, a small band of quite timid Jesus followers. These pictures are from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love them. The artwork in it is class. Before Pentecost, we've got people huddled in a dark room in the shadows, black and white, scared. And after Pentecost, we've got color and we've got fire and we've got people who are now able to proclaim the gospel, able to proclaim to the town around them the wonders of God. So Pentecost turns followers of Jesus into witnesses for Jesus. And witness, I think, is not as complicated as sometimes we perceive it to be. There, there's this you know, thing in Christianity, have you witnessed to anybody this week? And that can then be interpreted to mean, have you really awkwardly tried to share the gospel with somebody in your canteen over and they've got up and walked off and don't sit beside you anymore. I, I don't really think that's what it means. Whenever you forgive somebody, you've just witnessed because you've just shown the character of Jesus and the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do that. When you choose not to hold a grudge, but to forgive and to release, you've just witnessed by your actions, which are so much more powerful than your words. When you find yourself caring compassionately for people that a lot of society would ignore and overlook, you're witnessing because you're showing the character of Jesus. Whenever you see someone who, and you strongly, and this is so apparent in the church, you strongly disagree with their way of life, with their lifestyle choices, but you still choose to view that person as made in the image of God and of absolutely equal worth to every other human being on the planet and in need of God's grace and in need of experience the love of Jesus, you've just witnessed. Because you haven't judged someone and shut them off and chose to hate them and reject them because their choices don't agree with your choices. Witnessing is so much sometimes about our attitudes and our actions rather than trying to force awkward conversations. You will be witnesses. Once Pentecost happens and the Spirit is in you, you will be witnesses. Pentecost is for the whole world. Jesus goes on in Acts 1.8 to say that you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right from Genesis 12. In fact, right from Genesis 1, multiply and fill the earth was the commission given to Adam and Eve. Genesis 12, all the nations will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. The gospel is for the whole world and Pentecost comes so that the gospel can go to the whole world. So that instead of God just being seen as the God of Israel, 
that suddenly this, this national faith of Israel becomes a global phenomenon. Pentecost drives the people out into the world and the whole world becomes the mission field. This is a mission field. Some people are called to go to a different nation as missionaries to bring the gospel to a different culture. This is also a mission field as well. And there's a lot of mission to be done and it's not as easy as it might have been four or five decades ago. The gospel after Pentecost goes to the whole world. Do we think about these aspects of the Spirit? Or does the Spirit become for us just an individual thing? You know, I'm filled with the Spirit and therefore I do this and I do that. Or do we think big? The mission of God, the witness to the entire world. Another thing about Pentecost, Pentecost went outside. That's actually the title of a, of a sermon I remember listening to maybe, I don't know, 16, 18 years ago by Carter Conlon in Times Square Church in New York, Pentecost went outside. Every time I think of that, I think of a kid coming to their, their dad and saying, Daddy, can I go outside? I think of the disciples after Pentecost and whenever the Spirit has come saying, Father, can we go outside now? Because <laughs> Jesus has told them, you stay in Jerusalem and you stay put and you don't do anything until the promised Spirit comes. And I can imagine that moment when he comes, Peter saying, Daddy, can we go outside? <laughs> We're all full of living color right now. We've got the fire and the presence of God. And can we go outside? And out they go. They do not stay in the safety of their own comfortable homes or their own comfortable buildings. There's nothing wrong with having a comfortable home or a comfortable building, but there's something wrong whenever we retreat and stay there. <laughs> And never go outside to engage. Pentecost drives people outside. It's that picture of Jesus saying that we are the salt of the earth. And the salt gets rubbed into the meat. Pentecost, the spirit drives us out into the world. Why is it even called Pentecost? Just in case you're wondering. Hopefully the penty bit has given you a hint that it's something to do with five or fifty. And... Pentecost, if you read in the Old Testament, will not take you there, but we, we did it last year in front of the YouTube screen uh, on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, and it marked the beginning of harvest. Now, this is an aspect that, I, again, I just don't think we focus on enough when we think about the Spirit. There were 364 other days in the year that the Spirit could have come. And he came on Pentecost. Pentecost is about harvest. This is the, if, there's, if you forget every other thing that Pentecost is about, that's fine. I'll forgive you. If you forget this, I won't forgive you, okay? Pentecost is about, I will, Pentecost is about harvest. about harvest. In Acts 2:41, after Peter has has just preached his heart out and the people have been convicted and the they've repented, <clears throat> those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3000 were added to their number that day. There was harvest. Pentecostals are people of harvest. Because the Spirit has empowered them and driven them out to experience harvest. 
Yesterday was another forge day. And uh, even though I'm on the team for forge, I still listen to everybody else's session like I'm a student. And I still type notes frantically, even though I've heard it twice before. And I still engage in all the discussions and I still write my own answers to all of the questions that are asked. And Alan McWilliam posed a question yesterday during his session. And it's remarkably simple, but as I thought about it, I thought we could kick this about for hours. And the question was, we were doing a session on discerning spiritual climate. In other words, trying to figure out what is the spiritual culture that you're living in, the context that you're church is in and he he, he posed this question he says i want you to write down five words to describe your culture your context not the atmosphere in your church but your town what are five words that you would use or that people use regarding the town and and i sat and thought about that and and i suddenly thought this that you could talk about this for a long time this is a really really good action because when you think about your five words you then think well how does the church need to posture and position itself in a town to counteract those things so one of the things i would have said is without hope that there's no real when you engage out there, there's no real sense of a brighter future or that the town can change or that it's going to get better. There's not hope. The church needs to bring hope. And one of the ones that I wrote was, and I find it hard to put it into one word, but I wrote the word available, by which I meant ripe or ready. As in, there is a generation, and I'm not just talking about young people, I just mean everyone in the t- There is a generation out there who are ready for harvest. And there's no point in saying there's going to be a harvest in 10 years because in 10 years, you know, that generation will have changed and moved on. There is a generation now that is ready for harvest, that is ripe. And I pictured the kids down at the park, growing number of them, as a field and there were like stalks this was not some visionary experience or anything. it was just me and my imagination seeing them as a crop in a field and the thought came to me and it has never come to me before someone is going to harvest that and the question is who will it be will it be the church or will somebody else harvest them Somebody is going to harvest that field. It is ripe and someone will harvest it. There is, picture the the lonely people of this town. As I thought about this this morning and yesterday, I thought there, there are people in this town and every town and they probably never sit at a table and eat a meal with somebody else. They're probably on their own the vast majority of the time that they're in their homes. They're not, they just don't get much engagement. They're lonely. There's an epidemic of loneliness in the UK, according to the government. In fact, somebody was actually appointed within the last few years to address something like 9 million people in the UK who are seen as being lonely. That's a field that will be harvested. Who will harvest it? Will it be a good harvest? Will it be the church? Or will somebody else harvest it? It will be harvested. Every crop gets harvested one way or another. In Matthew 9, 
Jesus says to his disciples, and this is we've been praying this on Tuesday nights, and this has been a sort of a running theme in our thinking for, for a while now again. Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. There's a title for Jesus that we don't maybe dwell on enough. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's, he's Christ. He's the King of the Jews and the King of the whole world. He's the Lord of the harvest. And he encourages us to pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There is a field. It is ripe. It will be harvested. Who will do it? And I, what I, I'm, I'm not guilt tripping there by saying which person in this room will, will get involved. What I'm saying is, will it be the church? Will it be the workers who work for the Lord of the harvest? Who harvest these people into the kingdom of God? Or will it be Satan who one way or another gets his hooks into them and harvests them and brings them into his storehouse? There will be a harvest. Remember that. But by whom? Who will do it? And I would go so far as to say, I don't care if you speak in tongues all day long. Personally, I pray in tongues and I would love for everyone to seek the gift of tongues. I use it a lot in private prayer. But I don't care if somebody prays in tongues all day long and has no heart for the harvest. I'm like, you need more Pentecost in you than that. (laughs) You need more Pentecost because the Pentecostal spirit came at the time of harvest to harvest humanity for the kingdom of God. Let's get our vision of the spirit widened, broadened, deepened, magnified, increased, whatever. But let's not limit him to small things and let's actually see about the the mission of God. Pentecost is for harvest. I do think that is probably the most important point I want to make, but I'll make a few more anyway. (laughs) Um, Pentecost is for all people. Peter, when when he preaches in Acts 2, 17, he quotes from Joel and he says that the Spirit will be poured out on all people or all flesh, as the older versions might say. In the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying in Galatians 3, 28 that those things don't exist anymore. Jews are still Jews, women are still women, men are still men, slaves are still slaves. The point is, they are no longer boundary markers that keep some people out and some people in. The Spirit is lavish and indiscriminate, poured out on all flesh. Those boundary markers and those identities still exist, but they don't matter. If the Spirit, and I've said, I hinted to this last week, I think, and I'll continue. If the Spirit anoints a woman or a young girl for ministry, then well dare you stand in the way and say you can't do that because of your gender. That is not the kingdom of God, and that is not the Holy Spirit. Once the Holy Spirit has empowered someone, cut them loose and let them do what he has called them to do. Do not hold them back or hold them down. The Pentecost is for all flesh. Another verse, a similar verse in Colossians 3.11. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. 
all the same. Level ground at the foot of the cross. Level ground on the day of Pentecost. All flesh. Young and old. Love that picture of your, your young men. What is it he says in, in, Acts 7, or in Acts 2? Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Pent, you know, I think sometimes the church can worship youth and beauty almost every bit as much as Hollywood can worship youth and beauty. I think a real sign of Pentecost would be when older men and women who culture would say it's about time you hung up your boots and just you know, played golf and, and did nothing. Whenever they start getting a fire and say, no, God's not done with me yet. I'm rising up again. I'm rising up again. And it doesn't matter whether culture says I should be retiring. I'm rising up again because the Pentecostal spirit affects young and old alike. It's not just for youth and young people. Scythians, by the way, I was thinking about this this morning. You probably know what a barbarian is and you know what all those other words mean. A Scythian, that's probably derived from the word scythe, which is an old tool used to chop things down. So Scythians there, just as an encouragement to some of you, that's actually people who play for Everton. That'd be Scythians, you know, all that chopping and and kicking and hacking and ruining of other people's seasons. Um, This here, have you ever noticed this? Where have you seen this before? Anybody recognize that? Yeah. What's that? It's, it's, it's on the door out there. Have you seen that on the door? There's this random thing that the kids did years ago. I don't know what it means, but it's something to do with chocolate parrots. Have, have you ever noticed? I don't know, but you're, you know, in our house there are things stuck to doors, and every now and again you look at them and say, that's been there about three years. <laughs> Why is that still there? The three blobs, an example. Anyway, um, this was on, I, and I was wandering about yesterday on one of the breaks in Forge. I was away from the screen and walking about trying to get warmed up. And I found myself standing looking at this, which has been there for years, and totally just sort of caught by this no you can't, yes you can thing, which was part of some random mantra that the kids made up. But it was that yes you can that, that caught my attention because Pentecost says yes you can Pentecost takes Peter, who has more flaws than any of you, or all of us probably put together. Peter is an exceptionally flawed man. Pentecost takes Peter and turns him into someone in a moment who goes outside and preaches and 3,000 people respond because he is so anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to do that. Pentecost takes Paul, who was Saul, who persecuted the church, who killed Christians, who stood by and watched as Stephen was stoned. How anyone could watch another human being being stoned, never mind give approval to it and pat the backs of the ones who do it, is beyond understanding. But Saul did that, and after Acts 9, when he experienced his own Pentecost, things changed rather dramatically. I love this. Um, oh, I don't have it. No, I took it away. Uh, but in Acts 2.14, there's, there's three words. And the words are, Peter stood up. I love that. (laughs) Peter stood up. Yeah? When Pentecost happens, people who have no gifting, no qualification, no right to stand up, suddenly can stand up and declare the boldness, or with boldness, the power of God. Pentecost says, yes, you can. You say, I can't? (laughs) Pentecost says, yes, you can. Pentecost is genius. 
It's not a very theological thing to say, maybe, but Jesus said in John 16, Once I go away, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor will come to you. And I can imagine Jesus ascending into heaven. And this is imagination running wild. Forgive me, it's probably theologically wildly left field, right field, whatever way I'm pointing. But I can imagine Jesus ascending and the devil thinking, that's the end of him. And then the spirit comes and suddenly you've got millions of little Jesuses running around. Please forgive me that term. By that, I don't mean we are Jesus, but I mean his character's being formed in us, his mission's being worked out in us, his power is being shown. Suddenly, the earth is covered with millions of little Jesuses running around, bringing the kingdom of God. Imagine Jesus saying, there you go, devil, try putting that fire out. (laughs) Try putting that fire. It's genius. Genius. Why did he have to go? Because he could only be in one physical place at one time. But now he can be everywhere through his people. Love it. Pentecost. Genius. Pentecost, I'm nearly done, comes at a time of crisis. Anybody familiar with times of crisis? There's 40 days that Jesus was with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God after his resurrection. And then he says, I'm going, you stay put. And he goes. And then there are 10 days. And I wonder what went through their minds. It was probably all a bit chaotic. It was party time out in the street, but they weren't joining the party. Everybody in Jerusalem was celebrating Pentecost. They were staying inside. It was chaotic, formless and empty. Their lives probably waiting in the dark, wondering what's going to happen. And I think the world in general is in a time or has been in a time of crisis A lot of individuals, a lot of you have experienced crisis and chaos in recent months. The Holy Spirit does his best work in those chaotic moments. That's where he hovers over the waters and brings creation out of chaos and brings order out of chaos. And some of us, I think we we can overanalyze and sit and think to ourselves, why am I in this chaotic place? What did I do wrong that all this chaos is going on around me? Instead, maybe flip it to the positive and think, I know a God who works in chaos and brings order and brings new creation. Pentecost is also about presence, the tongues of fire, the mighty wind. That's the stuff that was going on at Mount Sinai when God met Moses. But now it's not just on Moses, it's on everybody. Pentecost creates a new humanity. You read about that at the end of Acts 2, how these people lived. In conclusion, have you ever said that? I am dry. Anybody ever, you don't have to put your hand up. Anybody ever just, I'm dry. I'm dry. And again, what what you do maybe sometimes is you overanalyze and you start to beat yourself. I'm dry because I haven't prayed enough and I'm dry. I'm dry because I don't read the scriptures enough and and I'm dry. And I would just, and yeah, there are times people, you know, that that can be true, but I, I I would take the phrase, I am dry, and I would just flip it to I am thirsty. Let your dryness, if that's where you are, let it manifest as thirst. Instead of it manifesting as some sort of beating yourself up that you've dropped the ball and you're dry and you deserve to be dry, turn it around and say, I'm thirsty. Even now as we worship, I am thirsty. 
Because that's the only prerequisite to experience Pentecost, to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. And for those of you that have lived in Pentecost for years, come afresh thirsting for more. And for those for whom this might be new or unfamiliar, thirst for it, maybe for the first time. Pentecost, class day in the history of the church. Father, give us a huge, huge vision of your spirit, who he is and what he does. Do not, Lord, allow us to limit you, we pray. But give us an expansive view. Let us remember that Pentecost is about harvest. That Pentecost is for all flesh, men and women, young and old. That Pentecost goes outside and witnesses to the character and the wonder of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray as we worship, as we sing, As we sit in your presence, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come once more and to fill us afresh. I am thirsty, Lord. I am thirsty. I want more of your Spirit. I want to be filled afresh. I don't care about the theological correctness of saying I want more, but I want more, Lord. I want more. I want a fresh filling, a fresh anointing, I want the river to flow, Lord. So come meet with us, we pray. Touch us and send us out of here different, Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Happy Pentecost.